You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 15th of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show... A day after the Genoa Bridge collapse, the political finger-pointing and point-scoring is well underway. My guests Terry Stiasny and Michael Binion will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including India's plans for putting people in space, New Zealand's plans for dissuading foreign property investors, and Paris's plans for either encouraging or discouraging alfresco ablutions. Nobody seems quite sure which. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the author and journalist Terry Stiasny and Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist for The Times. Welcome both. And we will start in Italy, where even as rescue work continues at the site of yesterday's bridge collapse in Genoa, the apportioning and ducking of blame for the disaster has commenced. Vital components of infrastructure in wealthy countries should not simply fall down. And yet, yesterday morning, the Morandi Bridge did, with dreadful consequences. The death toll now stands at 39, with 16 injured in hospital, 12 of those listed as serious. And while obviously less important, the economic consequences for Genoa and the region of the severing of this vital traffic artery will be colossal. Um, The breaking news as we go to air on this is that Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte has declared a 12-month state of emergency, uh, not just in Genoa, but in the entire Liguria region, uh, and has said he would make available 5 million euros from central funds, at least initially. Um... Terry, first of all, does that sound like a reasonable response? It, it has been uh, an understated uh, part of this disaster. Quite rightly, the focus should be on the, the appalling loss of human life. But this is a it's potentially economically calamitous for Genoa. Yes, it's obviously, yeah, in practical terms, obviously, apart from the you know, the emotional and the horrible human impact, as you say, of, of what has happened there, uh, obviously, there are going to need to be a, you know, look into the rest of the infrastructure, presumably in the region, to see whether there are any uh, similar problems that are likely to happen in the short term. There are obviously bound to be, you know, just immediate practical consequences for people who are trying to live and work and get about there. Um, I think one of the interesting things over the the last day or so since this happened has been uh, the way that the Italian politicians in particular have been th- trying to throw blame about uh, in all sorts of different directions. I mean, we saw uh, Salvini, the interior minister, uh, starting by blaming the company that is responsible for Italy's motorway, is the Autostrade per l'Italia that was privatised uh, in the 1990s. And he said they had earned billions from tolls, but they didn't spend the money on the upkeep of infrastructure that they were supposed to. Now, the company, for its part, said, no, we did regular checks. And this is, you know, they say there's nothing to do with them. The members of the government have also been blaming EU budget constraints in terms of uh, the amount of money that people are allowed to spend on on infrastructure and saying that the EU has been telling them that they, they shouldn't be spending so much money. Uh, but I think one of the bigger questions that will arise, I mean, there's an interesting article in, in Corriere della Sera today that's just 
blaming the Italy's approach to its infrastructure as a whole, saying that Italy was built in the 60s, abandoned in the 90s, and has started crumbling over the past 10 years. So, uh, you know, as you say, there are horrible human immediate consequences, but people have been trying to attribute blame all over the shop. Uh, Michael, we still don't know uh, what caused the bridge to collapse. We may not know that for some while. That being the case, at a moment like this, in which there's going to be obvious uh, and quite reasonable public anger, um, is the job of a responsible government, especially a, a government which is relatively uh, new in power, to to channel and or inflame that rage, as certainly Matteo Salvini seems to be doing there, as, as Terry described, or actually trying to uh, make exactly that point, that we don't know what happened here. Um, let's all concentrate on letting the investigators do their work while we try to help those who need help. Well, yes, obviously, it's uh, uh, no final judgment can come until the actual investigation has finished, and that will take some time. But the rage is about the generally shoddy standards of construction that have plagued Italy's infrastructure for some years. Italy has some of the world's finest engineers, but I'm afraid also they have a very poor record of bridges in particular and other big infrastructure buildings collapsing. Partly, uh, this has been proved to be the result of corruption, of shoddy construction, where uh, the mafia has infiltrated the construction industry and they have siphoned off the money uh, meant to be apportioned for buying the right amount of cement. Instead, they've put too much sand and things of that kind. Uh, It's also because the bureaucracy is such that safety checks that should always be done before any plan is approved, have probably been skimped, uh, a backhander has been paid, things have been built that shouldn't have been built, and in fact other uh, normal inspections have not been carried out. This bridge apparently had almost round-the-clock maintenance because engineers were very worried about it, and they said uh, it is an outdated, or it's a design that's 50 years old, it in itself, other architects said it's a dangerous design, uh, and many people said it would have been better simply to tear it down and build another bridge. Uh, Terry, infrastructure disasters of this sort are potentially uh, politically extremely hazardous for the incoming government, even if the government is, as is the case here, a relatively new government, which obviously uh, played no role whatsoever in the the erection or subsequent maintenance of this particular bridge. Are, Are there sort of hard and fast lessons about how they should be handled? I guess thinking in terms of the United Kingdom, the most plausible uh, recent similar disaster was the, the, the Grenfell Tower fire, that the handling of which by the government, just from a purely sort of uh, basic public relations human outreach perspective, was, was widely criticised. Yes, I mean, Grenfell was exactly an example that I was going to bring up. Uh, I think the trouble is that, you know, people like us journalists and often politicians, uh, they don't think about the the details of how things like fire safety, how things like the building of bridges work until something like this happens. But from a political point of view, it is very easy, as we've seen Salvini and others do, to start throwing blame about it's not the best way to handle it, as you say. Um, Theresa May got in big trouble for not going straight away to the scene of the, the Grenfell fire because people were angry and, you know, it was... It, these, these are the kind of catalysts that can 
illustrate something sort of in in the broader society and make people feel extraordinarily angry when they think that a disaster like this should not have happened. Uh, and I think usually you see the best way for a politician to handle it is to to go there, be on the scene, show some empathy with the people that have have suffered as a result of it, and then try to set up systems and inquiries and analysis to try and find out why it happened and try to stop you know, stop it happening again. You know, it is quite dangerous when people sort of jump to judgment and say, well, you know, this is obviously what went wrong. And uh, before before we know exactly what's happened. I think the idea of a state of emergency, I mean, in most countries, you would think, is that really the right response? Because the state of emergency is when you have a natural disaster, or you have, you know, lots of people made homeless or something like that. I think this is because uh, the geography of Genoa is extremely uh, uh, peculiar. It mm. is uh, more or less a bottleneck. There are mountains that come right down to the sea. So all the through traffic from northern Italy to France, which is a very, very major through route, has to go through a very, very narrow corridor along the coast. Now, that corridor goes in and out of mountains. The road uh, is uh, probably enters about 20 or more tunnels as it goes along and bridges because of this very, very narrow uh, place to build a, a route. And therefore, if this major bridge has come down, there's going to be absolute traffic chaos throughout the whole region as uh, all trade from Italy to France and Northern Europe is potentially interrupted. We will have more on the Genoa story on the Daily tonight at 2200. Uh, For the moment now, let's move along and look at India, which is celebrating Independence Day today. So happy birthday, India. Uh, In his Independence Day speech from the ramparts of the Red Fort in New Delhi, Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced that by 2022, that's the year, not this evening, India would join the United States, China and Russia in the select coterie of nations to have launched a manned space mission. Modi reckons that India's space agency is could do this for a squeak over a billion quid, which is obviously beans by the standards of space exploration, but it might be argued a debatable prioritising of resources for a country with 163 million people lacking access to safe water. Um, Michael, that argument gets floated uh, regularly at moments like this and has been said many times before about India's space programme. I'm not actually a massive fan of it myself, partly because I am a massive fan of space programmes, but also there is the argument that, that scientific exploration of this sort does, will, will cannot but help contribute to the greater good. Do you think that's fair or should a country like India, which is increasingly modernising and is increasingly an emergent superpower, be con- considering more the fact that that many people uh, can't drink their water. Well, of course, everyone would say they should do more to help the very, very poor. And the number of absolute people living in absolute poverty in India alone is more than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, And that is one reason why Britain, for example, has been giving aid to India for many years, which the Indians now say we don't need because we're quite a wealthy country. And many people in Britain have said, no, they don't need it. If they're spending money on space programs, it is a question of priorities. Now, whether they should uh, fold up their space program and divert all the money to social infrastructure, I'm not sure. India has a record of extraordinary peaks and troughs. They have very, very high-tech and excellent high-tech industries, which produce a lot of uh, money and are very effective. But at the same time, living right beside some of these large, shiny industries in the big cities are the most dreadful slums. 
And the Indian, uh, the general development has been very uneven. Now, it's certainly true that any large-scale research program, engineering program, does bring spin-offs and benefits. And India has used its space program to put many satellites into orbit, for one thing, which is useful, and these satellites are for weather and all sorts of other things. But I still question the fact was whether putting someone into space is anything more rather than really just a vanity project. Well, which does tee up exactly that question, Terry. Is it just a vanity project? I mean, are we still early enough uh, into the space age that being the fourth country to run your own manned space mission is a big deal? I guess... The interesting question is, as at, as at what point does it stop being impressive? When you become, I don't know, the 17th country to have put one of your citizens in space, or the 25th, or the 58th? Well, I'd love to think this is all just, you know, a great sort of idealistic project to improve science and so and and discover new things about, you know, the world beyond and space beyond. Um, I don't think it is. I think a lot of this is to do with strategy. I think a lot of this is to do with defence. I don't think it's any coincidence that we're seeing India working together with Japan on joint space missions at the same time that China is spending more money on its own space program, that China is planning to build a new space station by 2022 because apparently uh, the US said that they're not allowed to join the International Space Station, so they're going it alone and having their own project. And if you're sitting where India is sitting and looking at China spending more money on this, then, you know, inevitably, given the history History, India is going to start thinking about what they should be doing. And, you know, the fact that we've had Donald Trump in the last week or so talking about having Space Force, he's not doing that in a Kennedy-esque kind of, you know, we do these things because they were hard. He's talking about having it as a as a branch of the military. You know, he's it's doing more it looking be- like, you know... He's doing it because he wants to design the uniforms himself. <laughs> and a badge, yeah, and a, and a logo. For and it, and but, a badge yeah. and a logo. Yeah, it's not a coincidence they're wanting to call it a sixth branch of the military. So, you know, let's. it would be nice to think this is all just, you know, in the interests of science and boldly going, but I don't think it is. Uh, we do need to acknowledge the point, uh, Michael. You were, make, you, were, you were saying quite correctly that, that India's uh, adventures in high-tech have been extraordinarily impressive, and one of the most extraordinarily impressive things about it ha- has been its relative frugality. They, they gloated, not without reason, back in 2014, that they put an orbiter around Mars for $73 million US dollars. OK, $73 million is $73 million, but in, the, in terms of space exploration, I mean, measured against, I guess, what even this country proposes to spend to make it 20 minutes quicker to go to Birmingham on the train. Um, it's, It's extraordinary. It is. Well, don't forget, Indian salaries are pretty low by international standards. But nevertheless, I think that they have done as much as they possibly could on a shoestring, which is impressive. And Indians are also very good at improvising. If they see something that needs to be done, they think and devise a way of actually making something, some piece, some engineering uh, necessity, something that, that they can improvise, which isn't just buying an expensive item off the shelf from overseas. Uh, and that, of course, does cut costs enormously. And uh, I think they have been quite effective in trying to keep uh, the budget within control, partly, I think, because there is also a political necessity in India not to be seen to be throwing money around on some uh, high-tech project when it's government money. Uh, it's slightly different with high-tech. These are private mm. industries which are making a lot of money in export earnings. Uh, but a space program is a government program, and therefore the government does have to balance that out against the cost of installing you know, toilets all across India, which still need to be done.
Indeed so. Just a final thought on this, Terry. I mean, I, as I said as we introduced this, I, I am one of those people who still gets pathetically excited by all this stuff. I think it's absolutely marvellous. Are, are, you, are you a space sceptic? I'm not a space sceptic. I mean, I, I kind of buy into the, you know, I suppose it's all quite a while ago, the early sort of... I. I you know, the excitement of moon landings. You, you, pre- you, you preferred I'm, its early stuff. I preferred its early, <laughs> stuff. I preferred its early work, yeah, before it was fashionable. Um, I'm, I'm quite sceptical about, you know, these private space missions as well. The idea of that if you're Elon Musk or you're Jeff Bezos you, and you've got a billion dollars kicking around in your bank account, that you think, I know, I'll spend it on a space mission. And Jeff Bezos keeps asking, how could I spend my money? And people say, well, you could get rid of homelessness in Seattle, which is quite bad. And he's like, you know what? No, I'm going to build a rocket and send it to space. I mean, it's fun if you're a billionaire, but, you know, it would buy a lot of bridges or a lot of water. See, yeah. I don't know. I, I do kind of, I will guiltily confess that if I had a billion dollars going spare, and frankly, I barely have half that, I, I probably would uh, be quite tempted to run my own space program. Michael, Michael, would you? No, not for a minute. <laughs> no, no. I'd spend a, I'd, I'd uh, restore a uh, hundred old steam trains instead. <laughs> you, you, you're old not, technology. You, you're not going to get to the moon with those. No, you're not. Not, no, not even no, if you no, stack no. them but on top the of each other. But then the moon's made of cheese anyway. So why do we need to investigate it further? Well, on that bombshell, uh, we will take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, along with Terry Stiasny and Michael Binion. Coming up next, why your long cherished dreams of a holiday home and or refuge from the apocalypse in New Zealand are probably in tatters. Summer is finally here, and so is Monocle's bumper July-August double issue. This is when we zero in on quality of life and cities, why we love them, what makes them actually work, and how they need to improve. As always, we reveal our ranking of the top 25 cities to live in worldwide. Find out if your city makes the cut. And for the first time, we present our manifesto for creating a more relaxed city, a guide to breathing in and lightening up, and a celebration of everything from taking your kit off to making a bit of a racket. In the affairs pages, we meet the urban heroes giving back to their hometowns, while in design, we take a closer look at greenery in the city and how to do it right. Elsewhere, we take a dip in Geneva's top swimming spot, we tuck into some northern Spanish grub, and we sit down for a mass with the locals in a few Bavarian beer gardens. Prost! That's all in the July-August issue of Monocle on newsstands everywhere now. Or head to monocle.com to become a subscriber. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Terry Stiasny and Michael Binion. To New Zealand now, where the Overseas Investment Amendment Bill, stick with it, this gets more exciting, has passed Parliament. The practical upshot of which is that it will henceforth be exceedingly difficult for people who are not residents or citizens of New Zealand to buy property there. The bill is a response to runaway real estate prices widely believed to have been driven by foreign investors and or speculators. Michael is this a a sensible measure which will enhance the opportunities for local people to own their own slice of the Kiwi dream or is this grandstanding populist nonsense? No, I think it is quite a sensible measure. It's pretty dramatic. It's probably more drastic than need have been but to take some action to stop speculation driving people out of the market, particularly local people who then can't buy houses or finding that all the beauty spots in the country are in the hands of overseas speculators who rarely go there and fence off the land. That's another thing that has annoyed people, that some people 
uh, have come in, bought huge estates uh, overlooking mountains or along coastal paths, and then told uh, local people they may not use the footpaths anymore. Uh, land should be for the benefit and uh, use of people living in the country concerned. Uh, obviously, uh, others can and should may buy property, but it should be limited, or there should be a tax, or there should be something to discourage uh, buying up vast tracts simply in order to make a quick profit. Uh, Terry, the argument against that is that uh, property sales to foreigners in New Zealand currently are around 3%. In fairness, that's amplified in downtown Auckland considerably, where it's 22%. Is this likely to make that much of a difference to the New Zealand housing market, which we, sh- we should acknowledge has become, uh, in the last few years, as it has in a few other places, Australia is uh, a case in point as well, quite fantastically expensive? Yes. I mean, this is a problem that, yeah, we see this problem uh, in London, where one of the things that people complain about is overseas buyers coming in and buying houses and not living in them, leaving places empty. But as you say, it's 3% of the property market by value and 2% of the housing. Yes, some of these places are going to be, as you say, big, expensive, glamorous places with with huge um, estates and so forth. But it's not really going to solve uh, the root problem, partly because it's a question, as it is in London and elsewhere, of housing supply. If there's not enough housing stock, if there's not enough ability for people to get into the market at the lower end, you know, somebody coming along and buying um, a vast country estate is not the problem for somebody who's trying to get on the housing ladder at the bottom end and, and buy their first flat. That's not, you know, they're not competing in the same part of the market. And, you know, at the very top end of the market, I mean, there have been reports of, you know, the types of people who might be weighing up, you know, shall I buy my own space project or shall I buy <laughs> a large chunk of New Zealand just in case there's an apocalypse and I need to go somewhere far away, perhaps in a, in a rocket. Um, if you're that kind of person, you can get around this because, you know, you can... You can if you invest enough money, it tends to be in a country. You can often, you know, find ways that you you apply for citizenship or you apply for residency, and you you live in a place for enough days that you, you work your way around the rules. You, so could, I, you, you know. could give a sudden, extraordinarily generous gift to a citizen of New Zealand who then just happens to decide to buy a property you quite fancied. Um, <laughs> It, it strikes me that this may be slightly gettable or roundable. I mean, if I've thought of that in 10 seconds flat, I'm sure other people <laughs> will think of even more uh, cunning schemes. Um, Michael, you can you can see what the New Zealand government is trying to do here. It's not an unreasonable ambition to try and see be on the side of those who are, are struggling to get on the property ladder. But is there also a political risk, leaving aside the rights or wrongs, will this work, won't it, uh, of this, in trying to deliberately drive down the housing market? Because the convention wisdom is that people who own property tend to vote and nobody who owns their own place is going to thank a government which takes action which dramatically lowers their net worth. Yes, I don't think the aim is to make houses much, much cheaper than they were because, as you say, that would uh, drop the bottom out of the whole market and uh, people then would feel that uh, they've uh, lost their life savings because suddenly their house is worth half what they spent on it. No, I think uh, the political risk is that uh, it won't be very effective, uh, but weighed against that is the, the perception of who is buying these houses. It's aimed specifically, really, at the sort of people New Zealand doesn't want to see owning property, namely Chinese, 
Russians, uh, billionaires from either uh, America or the Gulf. In other words, people from far away. Now, Australians, of course, coming to buy property in New Zealand, in fact, I think, are still allowed to. Yes, we are. I mean, New Zealanders and Australians can, we can come and go from each other's countries more or less as we please. Well, fair enough. I mean, they, the, the people might say, well, they're the last people we want to buy houses. I'm sure New Zealanders would absolutely <laughs> concur with that. <laughs> uh, no, I think there is, it, it's, it's very difficult to get the politics of this right. As long as you don't cut the value of the housing market, then any measures to try to uh, appear to show a greater equality of opportunity to buy are going to be popular. Just a final quick thought on this one, Terry. Do you think we are likely, not just in New Zealand, but elsewhere, to see more populist gestures of this sort from governments, especially in places where the market uh, is pricing out a lot of people who feel that they are rightly or wrongly entitled to live in a particular place? I think there already are. I think, you know, for instance, so Switzerland already has restrictions on who can buy property. And it's not to say that there are obviously no foreign buyers of property in Switzerland, because there patently obviously are. And I think in, in some cases in Austria, and particularly in, in sort of holiday resorts, ski resorts, you've got to be either European or Austrian in order to be able to, to buy this. So I think this kind of thing is is starting to come in to a certain extent. But I think probably uh, the way that many cities or countries might decide to go is to try and tax non-residents. OK, well, finally tonight, uh, we go to Paris, where there is a to-do, possibly gusting towards a hubbub, even escalating into an outright brouhaha over the installation of a new line in public urinals. These go by the catchy name of trottoirs. I've been working with that all afternoon. That's probably still not right. Uh, it's not catchy. It needs work. And in contrast to the ornate and reflexively dignified pissoirs of yore are bright red facilities resembling modernist flower boxes. They are proving controversial. Michael, briefly, are we for or against the idea of bright red public urinals that look <laughs> a bit like flower boxes appearing at famous tourist locations in Paris? I'm torn on this one. Uh, I'm basically in favour, but uh, <laughs> because they're only there because they are places where men, and we're talking specifically about men, we are tend to urinate just all over the place uh, when they're drunk, uh, and they're obviously, or not necessarily only when they're drunk, but usually. So drunkenness uh, is likely to be it's a factor. Usually the factor, and uh, this is just simply. Um, trying to do something about a public nuisance. Uh, and what they're trying to do is to actually make something slightly more hygienic, slightly less uh, uh, sort of indecent in its uh, <laughs> sight, uh, and slightly more kind of um, regularized. But only slightly. I mean, this is pretty public. It really it is. is. Uh, and I mean, a lot of people would think, well, I mean, the French uh, and many Europeans generally, they are not too hung up about people urinating, you know, all the human race does. But there is a certain degree of privacy. And of course, the other thing that's come into play is the, the, the gender inequality. These are only for men. Absolutely correct. Uh, Terry, is, is that something that more thought should be given to? Well, I think that's part of the reason that they got rid of the old Vespasiennes, which were a bit more sort of modest. They had the old-fashioned Paris sort of pissoir, had a kind of a, a shield around the back, whereas these ones... Well, so, some of them were, in fact, quite handsome. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were sort of quite historic, you know, traditional yeah. things, but very, very smelly and uh, apparently, you know, prone to lots of public indecency as well, which uh, part of the reason they got rid of... Part of the reason they got rid of them is because women couldn't use them, and so they did replace them with public toilets 
toilets. I think these are causing most controversy in the smarter areas of Paris, like in the Ile Saint-Louis, where they don't like to think that uh, people are, are weeing in the street, but they obviously <laughs> were. <laughs> so I think if you put them in sort of perhaps less prominent places, you know, they, they've got compost in them, they grow flowers, they're eco-friendly. And, of course, know, there is a paradox here, and that is that um, the Victorians were very, very keen on public toilets because they felt this was something to, you know, for the relief of the poor and that this was going to clean up the streets and everything. And there was a tradition of building a large number of municipal toilets all over Britain. Now, these are very expensive to maintain. And the more you make them hygienic and nice and well-maintained and everything, the more expensive they are. And in the last few years, they've been closing them by the hundreds. And you'd be very lucky well, to t- find... Turning them into whimsical cocktail well, bars. Oh, indeed, <laughs> in, in restaurants, underground restaurants, all sorts of things. You, you think, well, you know, is this right? And the result is there are very few public toilets uh, in the big cities in Britain. This is true. Uh, returning to these new installations in Paris, Terry, is the is the colour, do you think, what's upsetting people? I can see the logic behind them being a bright colour, so you can see them from a distance, although I guess given that they will largely be used at night, I'm not sure how helpful that is, if they were painted more discreetly, perhaps. Yeah, if they, maybe they were green or something, because I think the, the red, <laughs> it does draw the eye to it, so you'll probably notice them more than you might want to, whereas you probably would want to, to look away, otherwise maybe the red catches people's eye and makes them have to look where they should rather not would rather not be looking. Or, or, or should Paris Michael just be doing as the Victorians did and building more proper and enduring facilities, which might a hundred years from now be yes. turned back into whimsical cocktail? Well, bars. that would be a good idea. I mean, I think all towns should do that. But the problem is, who's going to pay for their upkeep? And if you don't keep them up, they become uh, very unpleasant, you know, smelly and uh, unhygienic. So if you're going to build uh, public toilets, and of course in many countries they are still embarking on a program, much of the developing world and India, as we've just been talking about, indeed has a massive program of trying to build public toilets, but they're still needed in big cities. Nowadays, most people think, oh, we can always go to a shop or a restaurant or a pub. But these places actually quite often say you may not use our facilities unless you've, uh, you know, having a drink in our bar or bought something in our shop. Well, on that salutary lesson, uh, we have reached the end of today's show. Terry Stiasny and Michael Binion, thanks both very much for joining us. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and researched by Julia Webster. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Matt Alagaya. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.